My name is Matt Stefan, and it has seemed to me over the past couple of weeks that we're in a sacred time as a church as we open up and move forward. And this is kind of a sacred talk. I was excited to write it, uh, but it was also painful to write. And I think it might be painful to hear. And so I want to frame it in just the right way by sharing my favorite thing that I've ever found on the internet. It's a cartoon about the beauty and the pain of telling the truth. So here it is. In our first scene, we meet our intrepid explorer and he's making his way through the jungle. And he says, at long last, I have found it. The crystal which utters only truth. And then the crystal which utters only truth says, some of your problems are your own fault. And then our intrepid explorer says, okay, wow, you little jerk, you don't know me. We're in a series of Sundays where we're discussing the church. We're exploring what it means to be a church that belongs to Jesus, a Jesus church. And we're asking a lot of really big questions. And so far we've asked, what is the church? Well, sometimes it's a mess. And sometimes it's a mystery. That Jesus is present here in beautiful and life-changing ways, that's pretty mysterious. And then we asked, who is the church? And we saw that anybody who wants to be known and loved can come to Jesus's table. We're all invited to belong to this community that in turn belongs to Jesus. And today we're asking, what happens when the church goes wrong? Sometimes it goes very wrong. Rich Mao, the president of Fuller Seminary, stood right here on this stage in 2013 and declared that the church globally is in a season of repentance. Okay, wow, you little jerk. And so this is going to be a talk about repentance. And it's also going to be a talk that's a little bit about grief. Repentance and grief are the tools that Jesus has given us to prayerfully process wrongdoing in our world, whether the wrongdoing of others or our own. And yet repentance and grief are things that we don't like doing. Pete Scazzaro is a pastor in New York City, and his ministry focuses on emotionally healthy spirituality. His book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, has been life-changing for a lot of people. And he observes the way that Americans work extremely hard to avoid pain, especially pain like grief and repentance. In his chapter on learning to grieve, he notes, in our culture, turning toward our pain is counterintuitive. And he continues, sadly, the result of denying and minimizing our wounds over many years is that we become less and less human, empty Christian shells with painted smiley faces. He goes on to say that grief can be something that God will sometimes use to enlarge our soul, to make us more human. And I'll add to grief, repentance. Repentance and grief, these are things that enlarge our soul and that God might use in the end to help us feel more alive and to set us free. They're good for us, even though we don't like them. Now, sometimes at my children's daycare, they are served vegetables and they protest. And their very warm but very savvy teacher will tell them, I didn't put those on your plate for you to like them. I put them on your plate for you to eat them. So this is a eat your vegetables talk. Real vegetables will make you healthy. Spiritual vegetables will make you free. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And reflecting on this, the author David Foster Wallace said, the truth will set you free, but not till it's finished with you. 
And the truth isn't finished with us yet. And the truth is the church has been wrong. We've been wrong. And we've caused and been caused a lot of grief. And so it's time to grieve and it's time to repent. Now, the Bible doesn't call us to ignore our pain or just move past it. The Bible calls us to engage deeply with it through grief and repentance. And so this is a talk about grief and repentance. And as we'll see, it's also a talk about moving forward. Our first scripture reading for today about Jesus's entry into Jerusalem from Matthew 23. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and yet you were not willing. And the same story, but Luke's version from Luke 19. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Let's first talk about grief. In these passages, Jesus is passing into Jerusalem, and as he does so, he grieves. He knows that the heart of Jerusalem is far from God, and he loves them dearly with a mother's love. And so he weeps. The biblical tradition of grief is robust. There's 150 psalms, and two-thirds of them are grief psalms, complaints of some kind to God. Now, the happy psalms are short. Psalm 23, that great celebration of God's care and provision for us, it's only six verses long. But by contrast, Psalm 22, a great and tragic psalm, it's 31 verses. It's just a human truth that we have a lot more to say when we're miserable than when we're happy. And one of those verses from Psalm 22, Jesus quotes from the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the book of Job too demonstrates the length of our grief. Job is a very successful person. And in one day he loses not only his fortune, but his 10 children as well. And so for 35 chapters, he grieves. Now, interestingly, Job is believed to be the oldest book in the Bible it's humanity's oldest and most profound question. Where is God when I am suffering? Now, many of these Psalms, and especially the book of Job, speak in a way so as to hold God accountable for that pain. And so Job cries out, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Job, in some way, makes God responsible for his pain. And the Bible gives us permission to talk to God this way when we're grieving. But to some, talking to God this way seems irreverent. But the Bible depicts it as an act of faith, to turn over our deepest self to God. In the book of Job, Job has three friends who tell him that it's heresy to talk about God in this way. And after 35 chapters of Job's grief, God shows up. And God is happy with Job and angry with his friends. So the book of Job records, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he turned to Eliphaz the Temanite. I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Turns out that prayerful grieving is an act of faithfulness. 
Now, a confusing verse on grief comes from Paul's first letter to Thessalonica. He wrote this, Paul, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like those who have no hope. And some wrongly take this as an injunction against grieving, as if Paul is saying, do not grieve. But what it means is, don't grieve like the unbelieving world. And as Pete Scazzaro is helping us to see, our unbelieving world grieves by avoiding the pain of grief at all costs. So instead, this passage from Paul means, grieve loud and hard, but faithfully take the grief and give it to God. In our world, it's a countercultural thing to move towards the pain. But what we learn from Job is that when we faithfully offer our pain to God, God shows up. And after 35 chapters of Job's grief prayers, God arrives. And he doesn't answer all of Job's questions, but God's mere presence changes everything for Job. Where is God when I'm suffering? He's on his way. So grieving in this way is godly. And in fact, it's at the heart of following Jesus. Pete Scazzaro again. Turning toward our pain is counterintuitive, but in fact, the heart of Christianity is that the way to life is through death. The pathway to resurrection is through crucifixion. And when we're really, really grieving, it feels a bit like we're dying. And yet God meets us there and works on us right in the middle of that pain. And in many ways, that's the heart of the good news. To offer our pain to God in this way is a real hopeful thing, that God is going to meet us in that pain, and that in the end, that's going to be enough. Now, grief is a powerful spiritual tool when we're in pain, and repentance is a powerful spiritual tool when we've caused pain. Our second scripture reading for today Select verses from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassions, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, O God, will not despise. Martin Luther opened the Reformation by nailing his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Castle. And the very first of these 95 theses was this, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life of believers is repentance. Okay, wow, you little jerk. Now this might seem a little bleak, 
Luther seems to be saying that Christians will never make much progress or that the entirety of Christian life is just groveling. But of course, that wasn't the point. He's saying that repentance is the way that we make progress in life with Jesus. Now, interestingly, the word for repentance doesn't mean grovel or feel bad about yourself. It simply means to turn away. The secular organizational psychologist Adam Grant was recently on a Christian leadership podcast as part of his book tour for his really great book, Think Again. Awesome book. You should read it. And in this book, he's outlining the human superpower of considering the data and changing our minds. And the Christian host of this podcast explained that the Greek word for repentance doesn't mean to grovel or feel bad about yourself. It means to think through things and turn away from an old way and towards a new way. And Adam Grant said, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Christians ought to be great at reconsidering the data and changing our minds. Now, repentance doesn't have to be a tearful thing, but sometimes it is. And so Paul wrote, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. And in Psalm 51, King David is showing this kind of godly sorrow. King David was the greatest king of ancient Israel, but he had sinned greatly. He'd had an extramarital affair with a woman named Bathsheba and then murdered her husband as part of the cover-up. And this was all done in secret, but God knows our secrets. And God revealed David's wrongdoing to the prophet Nathan, who then exposed the truth publicly to break through David's denial and draw him into repentance. And I'm sure David was thinking, okay, wow, you little jerk. Now, King David could have denied it or explained it away or called Nathan a liar or had Nathan killed. Or he could have simply said, you know what? I've done a lot of good in this world. I'm a net positive person. Surely all my good deeds outweigh my one mistake. But instead, David pens a song about repentance. The, songs, the Psalms are Israel's songbook and I find it endlessly fascinating that David wanted this psalm, Psalm 51, enshrined forever in the national record. But that's kind of how the whole Bible is. The Bible absolutely refuses to spin or whitewash the flaws of its heroes. And so Moses was a murderer and Peter rebuked God and Noah got drunk and Jonah was a racist and Jacob was a liar. It's as if the Bible is saying to us, the godly way to do things is to move towards the pain even when we're the ones that caused it. And so David writes Psalm 51 as a way of telling the whole world, this is how you acknowledge the pain that you have caused. And he offers us several key components of godly remorse. The first of these is an, undeni an undenying awareness of wrongdoing. David wrote, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And the second of these is full acknowledgement of impact. David wrote, against you, only you have I sinned. Now, does this mean that David thinks he didn't sin against Bathsheba and her husband? Of course not. This is what's called a Hebraism, a facet of the Hebrew language designed for emphasis. And so they repeat a name for impact. When God calls Samuel to ministry, God says only two words, Samuel, Samuel. And Jesus said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? It means that David knows he didn't only hurt Bathsheba and her husband, but he also hurt God himself. Whenever we hurt someone else, we also offend God. And so number three, 
David asks God for transformation. He wrote, create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit in me. But he didn't only ask for transformation. He asked for transformation at whatever cost. King David wrote, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me. And this is actually an image of laundry. And in those days, garments were beaten as they were clean. And so it is as if David is saying, beat this out of me if you have to. Whatever it costs me, create in me a heart that pleases you. This is a broken and contrite heart. The kind of heart that pleases God. And Martin Luther thought that the whole of Christian living is to cultivate this kind of heart before God. And this is the kind of heart that God wants to see in his churches. Now something happens when we repent and King David captures it well. What happens when we repent with a genuine and contrite heart is that God restores us. We find ourselves in his presence and with joy. Dallas Willard once said, right here on this stage, by the way, again, that God is excited to forgive us. Fleming Rutledge in her magisterial book, The Crucifixion of Jesus Christ, said that the Bible can be summed up in this way. God has a case against his people, but he wants to commute the sentence. And David knew that God had a case against him. And he knew God to be merciful and kind. And so he repents in this genuine way with a broken and contrite heart. And the fruit of that kind of repentance, as King David got to see, is joyful communion with God. And that seems worth it. Now, we're gearing up to grieve the way the church has failed and repent of our part in it. And that invites the really big question, does God want us to repent as individuals or as a group? Is there such a thing as collective repentance? In our first scripture reading, Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he's brokenhearted that they've not turned away from their current life and towards God. He's brokenhearted that they haven't collectively repented. And that begs an interesting question of moral philosophy. Is everyone in Jerusalem the same amount of guilty? Well, of course not. But here, Jesus is holding them responsible together. Now, in our world, we're so accustomed to thinking in terms of individual responsibility that we're offended by the idea that we might also be held responsible as a group. Of course, the Bible talks about our moral responsibility as individuals, just like in Psalm 51. But just as often, it talks about our moral responsibility as people groups. In the book of Daniel, nations are judged not as individuals, but together. And today, Job has been our great guide for grief. And when we meet Job, we read this. Job had seven sons and three daughters. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their heart. This was Job's regular custom. Job was taking moral responsibility for the group. And God really likes this about Job. There is an irreducible togetherness about being human, and there's an irreducible togetherness about following Jesus. There is an I, yes, but there is always also fundamentally a we, there is a group. And God likes it when we take moral responsibility for the group. Job was saying, I might not have been the one that pulled the trigger, but I am part of the we that did this. And so in some very real sense, I am guilty too. 
and I repent. And so the church together must repent. And Menlo Church must repent. And when you hear me say that, you might be thinking, okay, wow, you little jerk. So let's talk about what happens when the church goes wrong. Pete Scazzaro, one last time. The work of growing in Christ does not mean that we don't go back to the past as we press ahead for what God has for us. It actually demands that we go back in order to break free from the destructive patterns that prevent us from loving ourselves and others as God designed. So we're going to go back. And if we're going to go back to grieve and repent for the ways that church has been wrong, we might as well go all the way back. In the year 380, a man called Constantine battled for the throne of Rome and he had a vision in a dream one night that if he painted the cross of Jesus on the shields of his army, that they would prevail in this Roman civil war. And he did. And they did. And Constantine both became the emperor of Rome and a Christian. And this was the very first time in human history that violence was done in the name of Jesus. And the church stood unified and enjoyed imperial support of one kind or another for a thousand years. And then in the year 1084, the church in the East and the church in the West split over theological differences. In John 17, Jesus prayed that his church would be one and united in love. And here for the first time, it was two. And this was the first moment of church disunity. Hundreds of years later, the Spanish crown thought itself closely allied with the Pope. And they launched what is called the Spanish Inquisition, which was designed in part to force Jews and Muslims to convert to Christianity through torture and death. And this Spanish imperialism spread church-sanctioned slavery all across the globe. And in no other country was the brutal kind of chattel slavery adopted as it was here in America. And that brutal slavery was often defended by the church with the Bible. And when the middle passage was open, 12 million slaves were shipped to the Americas, delivered to Christian nations. And 1.8 million of them were put directly into the Atlantic. I grew up Pentecostal. And in 1906, God launched the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles, and thousands became Christians by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the most remarkable thing about the Azusa Street Revival was that people from all races gathered in the meetings in churches where revival fell. People from all over the world had gathered there. It was illegal at the time, but the gatherings were so large they couldn't be prosecuted. There is an irreducible togetherness of God's people. God wanted his people together. But in 1916, the first all-white Pentecostal denomination was started. Now, in this time, in this long history of the church, the church did a lot of good too. But what do we do with these stories? We have to grieve. We have to repent. People in regular kinds of churches, regular people like you and me did these things. God has a case against his people. In more recent times, the Catholic Church has been rocked by sexual abuse, and evangelicals like us aren't much better. In the last five years, about a dozen high-profile evangelical pastors have stepped down because of scandals. 
what happens when the church goes wrong in these ways? There's a refrain across the entirety of the Bible, this one phrase, for God's namesake. And this phrase tells us that the most important thing is that God is seen clearly for who he is in love and glory so that people can know him and trust him. But one example. For the sake of my name, I brought Israel out of Egypt. I did it to keep my name from being profaned in the eyes of the nations among whom they lived and in whose sight I revealed myself to the Israelites. What happens when the church goes wrong? God's name is profaned in the eyes of the nation. The world sees the damage that the church can cause and then they have trouble believing in Jesus. There's been a recent demographic shift in the United States with the rise of a group that sociologists call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. On surveys about religious beliefs, they simply mark none, non-applicable. A recent Pew Research study showed that they've grown to 20% of Americans. And on the qualitative section of this Pew survey, people explained why they have no religious beliefs. They put things like this. These are actual qualitative statements From the Pew Research, one person said, I see organized religious groups as more divisive than uniting. Another put, I think that more harm has been done in the name of religion than in any other area. Or I think that religion isn't really religion anymore. It's a business. It's all about money. What happens when the church goes wrong? The watching world can't believe in God anymore. What happens when the church goes wrong? It is harder and harder for the world to know Jesus and his love and his transformation and his new life. It is harder and harder for them to find the joy of belonging in church. They can't do these important and life-giving things. And that's my story. There's a documentary called Jesus Camp. And when I was in seminary, it was sort of required viewing. And despite that, I've, I've never watched it apart from two scenes It's just too painful for me because it features the church that I grew up in. And it tells the story of a revival speaker for children's ministries. And my church partnered really closely and hosted this speaker uh, a number of times. And leading up to this week, we had a long talk on staff here at Menlo about whether or not to show a clip from this documentary. We decided not to because it's just too yuck. But what happens in this one particular scene is that this revival speaker, she's leading a service at a camp for elementary age students, and she's just screaming at these kids, you hypocrites, you talk dirty just like the kids at school, not in God's army. And yeah, sometimes hypocrites need to be called out, but not eight-year-old ones, and not like that. And I was in middle school and high school when I experienced those types of things. So I could filter it some, but at some point I decided, if this is what church is like, I'm never going back in one. And with some therapy and the power of Jesus's grace to heal hearts, I'm here now. But when people ask me about that journey, I simply have to say, well, the church isn't God. I spent many years loving Jesus and letting him lead me anywhere but church. And slowly he helped me see that he loves his churches even when they're a mess. And I found Jesus 
faithful to heal my hurts. But when the church hurts people, a lot of them never make it back to faith. A lot of them limp through life, wounded and without the one thing that could heal their hurts. Now, the historical examples or the documentaries might seem far off, but we know that people have been hurt real bad right here at Menlo Church. In the past year, we've experienced the loss of our senior pastor, and we know from just countless emails and conversations that people have experienced this church right here is hypocritical, unsafe, divisive, or uncaring, or unloving, and maybe you're one of them. Now, we've worked hard to hold ourselves accountable with two independent investigations, one of which is with a highly respected organization that specializes in these things. But still, for a season, Menlo Church has been a church that hurts people. And we have to come to that with a broken and contrite heart. And we have to ask God to forgive us. Now, I want to talk to anyone here at the end who might have been hurt by a church, maybe this one or maybe another. I am so sorry that it happened to you. I know that it hurt and that it was wrong. There's a story about Jesus smashing up the temple in Jerusalem, and it's stuff just like what happened to you that he's so angry about. And I know that I am just one small person from one small church, but I am so sorry. And I know, I know that Jesus can heal that hurt. Turn that wounded heart over to Jesus. He will be good to you. And I know, and I believe deep in my guts that Menlo Church has a bright future in God's hands, but maybe it starts right here with grief and with repentance. Let's pray. Dear God, we come to you, Lord, and we want to fully acknowledge in an undenying way and in a way that accounts for the full impact. God, in in some really real ways, we have failed you. And so we say we repent, God. Would you blot those things out in your mind? The way that you are kind and merciful to do. God, and whatever it costs us, would you create in us, right here in the heart of Menlo Church, would you create in us a heart that pleases you? Lord, we turn over our lives as individuals and as a people group to you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.